Welcome to the One Deeper Podcast. The following is a conversation with Dr. Giacomo Spigler. Dr. Spigler is an assistant professor at the Tilburg School of Humanities and Digital Sciences in the Department of Cognitive Science and AI. He teaches reinforcement learning and calculus. We talk about space, virtual reality, biology, the brain, AI. We go everywhere. Dr. Spiegler has a wealth of knowledge and his enthusiasm is infectious. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Giacomo Spiegler. Dr. Spiegler, how how would you write for me to refer to you, Giacomo or? Uh, Giacomo is fine. Okay, <laughs> all right, cool. Man, thank you, uh, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. I really appreciate it. I've been wanting to talk to you like uh, for a while now, but uh, you're a pretty busy guy, and uh, it's hard to uh, find some time that works. But this is great. Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. What are you going to say? No, just that I listened to the other to the other interviews, and I'm really excited. It was really very interesting talks. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so I'm just like, okay. So usually, like, I just start from where we start, right? So how did you? Let's go. Let's 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 wind the clock back a little bit. Um, what was it like in high school? And like, did you find math, or did math find you? How did that work? Uh, no, I think I was uh, always pretty good with math. Uh, the only time I struggled with math was, I think, in elementary school with multiplication tables. <laughs> uh, it was a it was a nightmare. It took me forever to to memorize them. Uh, it was really useful, of course. In the end, <laughs> uh, my parents were uh, very, um, helped me a lot on that. <laughs> but yeah, I think that was the only time. For the rest, uh, it was uh, uh, always kind of fine. But I think my uh, the, the, well, the the main difference was when. Um, uh, well, it did not really change my outlook in mathematics, but I definitely give it different flavor. It was when in the last two years of high school, I uh, discovered uh, almost by accident uh, the Mathematics Olympi- uh, Olympiads. Um, and those are really interesting because the first, uh, I don't know if this is the same in other countries, but in Italy we have well different levels to get to the national level. Never get, got to the international level, that was really hard. But at the national level, the first step is just a multiple choice, very stupid quiz uh, that you do in high school. Uh, in the first year, we had a, an awful teacher, and she would just uh, say, okay, yeah, we have this hour, we have to do this, just get to work. And then it was really boring exercises. They were really like the type of uh, dumb math. And it was, okay, this is not interesting. And then we never, uh, neither me and my brother got it. Uh, but then at some point, we ended, uh, we ended up in the team of the, of the high school for the team challenge. And this is much more interesting, not only because of the exercises, but because the people were really cool. And it was a lot of fun. So we went out uh, by accident to the National um, Olympics in Italy. Um, my brother, uh, both as an individual uh, competitor and with the team, and I only with the team. And then we found it was a, a lot of fun. It was a great experience uh, with amazing people. And then uh, it was all, all also a free holiday in a different city. Uh, so then the, the next year, we really push, uh, put a lot of effort to actually get back to there because we really wanted that little holiday and to meet those friends uh, again. Uh, and then we end up again with a team uh, and also individually. Uh, so that's uh, that's interesting because, like you know, in my in my uh, math experience, it's always been a, like a 
solo sport, right? So I just, you know, mm-hmm. I have exams and questions and homework I do myself. What, what, like, what, like, what, what changes when you have to do it in a team environment? How does that even work? Well, the main, the main uh, Olympiad is still uh, the individual one. Uh, in team, uh, it's more like the early quits in which you have to give like a numerical answer. And it's more, well, it, they're actually pretty hard problems anyway, but they're just many. So they are designed to be split uh, among the team. Uh, there actually is a lot of strategy because you have to designate a captain and a runner. And the runner has to take the, the solution one by one or, you know, or in group if you have many uh, to the table, to the desk with the jury. And, and choosing, you know, uh, one that runs faster is also part of the strategy because you, you get, you know, you get your answer before the other team and the one, who, the first one who gets the answer gets extra points. Um, so there were a lot of, uh, kind of game theory strategies behind it that made it, uh, uh, fun and uh, fast paced and, and kind of competitive. Uh, but then most of it, it was just about getting drunk, you know, in the <laughs> night with the other guys and playing, uh, and playing werewolves. <laughs> so the most of your education was in, was in. Italy, you spend most of your time in. Uh, no, actually, um, I only did my bachelor in Italy. Um, then my master and PhD, I did them uh, in the UK. Right, but yeah, 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 in Sheffield. No, no, not Sheffield. Sorry. Uh, uh, University of Edinburgh for a master, mm-hmm. and then Sheffield for my PhD. Right. Okay. Um, okay, so that's so. So that was your first taste, first taste of it. Like, so what did you do other than you know, like, did you have any other interests? Like, what, what, what were you up to? Uh, in, before you went to university, started doing like hardcore mathematics stuff. Well, I was always uh, in. Uh, so I never had the difference between uh, uh, you know uh, work and uh, and hobbies because my work is my hobby. Right. Um, so I remember that since I was very young, like as young as five, six, uh, uh, I was already you know trying to build stuff or to explore the world. Or even just you know could be look at a microscope or uh, trying to build some robots. Um, it changed a bit when uh, I started getting serious with computers around uh, 11, 12. Uh, but then I could do uh, a lot of things. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of things in computer science that you can do without having infrastructure or excessive training. Uh, I remember back then it was um, uh, it was still before deep learning. So uh, I was implementing, as usual, the typical neural networks, backpropagation and stuff. But the most interesting things were about computer vision and robotics. So you only needed a webcam and some programming to take a picture and then uh, you know do something with the picture, like try to detect objects, uh, uh, do segmentation uh, about color, you know, and try to do some tasks. Um, it was uh, much harder than it is now, uh, but you know it's something that you just had to look up online, read, you know, about the algorithms, and then try to implement them. Um, so I also had a lot of fun uh, writing, uh, trying to work on programming languages, uh, operating systems, uh, uh, a bit of uh, um, algorithmic competitions. Uh, just we were trying a lot of different stuff, like and every every um, one of these tasks, I would just try and play, uh, just trying to implement something because of the fun of it. Right. Or it could be like a, a writing a three D video game. Uh, uh, did not really care about the gameplay or the game. It was more about, uh, okay, now we have to make the player jump. And how do it jump? So you have to simulate gravity and acceleration to make the jump uh, realistic. And then you have to implement that. Oh. Then after it's implemented, it becomes boring. Right. I just want to solve these little, this little problems. Uh, and by doing so, however, I learned a lot. What did because, you, uh, uh, then... I mean, I want to ask you, like the, the real question that I want to ask you. Is, so part of the thing that I'm, part of what I'm interested in when I talk to uh, people is sort of, mm-hmm. 
um, I'm interested in trying to figure out what it is they think the world is as far as they're concerned, right? Because part of the reason I'm really just, like, I'm in AI, I'm studying AI, is because it it seems to me that people in AI are the people who are doing the most work in trying to conceptualize what the world actually is, right? Like, you know, because you're trying to teach this, you're trying to build something that can behave in the world in a way in, a, in an intelligent fashion right but to do that you have to rep like you have to figure out what exactly the world is about like either you try to represent try to try to represent an abstract version of the world or you you know try to build some rules into it so like that's what i'm really curious about but we'll get to that but then, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, but um okay so what, what, what was your bachelor in i just uh, my bachelor is in computer engineering. Okay. But I was always uh, in computational neuroscience. So my master and PhD were on the topic. Um, I picked uh, computer engineering mostly because um, uh, there was a, um, a very good uh, uh, honor school uh, uh, in Pisa called Sant'Anna. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, is actually pretty famous in the field, but uh, in general culture is not as, uh, as known. But it's something like a call normal just for applied sciences. So there are six fields. Uh, and for example, in the applied sciences, it was uh, engineering, medicine, uh, and uh, and biotechnology. Um, and there's very few uh, positions uh, with a highly competitive uh, entry exam. Um, but then you get like a good scholarship uh, and you're staying in these beautiful uh, dorms and uh, with a beautiful campus. Then we were studying at the, at the University of Pisa, but uh, we had some uh, extra uh, stuff at the college. Um, and uh, I wanted to get there, and so I would have preferred like computer science or computational neuroscience, uh, but uh, it was close enough, and then I decided to go there instead. <laughs> right. So neuroscience. That's also like how how, how did you like? So you sort of stumbled into neuroscience, right? Um, yeah. So. I, since, uh, yeah, since uh, I can remember, like, uh, since I was uh, as young as, yeah, as you have memories, I always really uh, liked robots and to make, uh, uh, you know, the true AGI, like the artificial general intelligence, uh, like uh, uh, not just uh, AI for application, but AI as an actual synthetic life form. Now, how to do it uh, is very complicated. So the first step, of course, is... Uh, um, was already like traditional AI was already a big field, uh, even though you know, it's that neural network, but not deep learning yet. But there are still many approaches, and uh, and it kind of made sense. Um, but then, of course, uh, back then uh, with even you know less performing uh, methods than now, um, we were m- much worse off than we are today. You know, in getting to the objective, we're still far from it, but you know you can definitely see a, dif- a big difference. And and back then uh, I was thinking, okay, the the one way to proceed is to go kind of a bit bottom up instead of top down that was like the good old-fashioned ai approach and say okay we have only one example of uh, you know a really high level intelligence and that's humans um so why discard the brain altogether when we have it right there in front of us and we can try to take some inspiration that does not mean to actually make an, an, an exact model of the brain but if you understand its function you know and how it relates to the algorithm you know more on a computational level you could um um, uh, you could uh, um, maybe you know get a better understanding of how to build intelligence. So you and sorry, I remember. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just yeah. I, I just uh, had a question. Like, so you, so you think 
intelligence do you, do you uh, do you think of it as substrate independent in the sense that uh yeah matter? i think so yeah i think so i think that the biology is limited by a lot of things including for example you know uh, very energy conservation the brain is very energy efficient but it still consume i think like one fifth of our uh, metabolism mm-hmm. uh, which is crazy you know in a, in a evolutionary context um so there are a lot of limitations that biological brains have that computers do not have uh, and they're i'm pretty sure that there are ways to do it you know the same function in a different way you know because the substrate is different but yes i do think that the computation is uh, more on a functional level than on how it is implemented so but 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 but, but, but okay so our neurons so let's just talk about how the how just just talk about the firing of neurons for example right yep. and the trans and the transmission of neurotransmitters between synapses though so let's just talk about the transmission of neurotransmitters right let's and they are they are they obviously they're, they're part of the physical world they obey physical laws right so when they're diffusing across across the synaptic cleft between between gaps mm-hmm. they obey the laws of thermodynamics and like you know diffusion rates etc right and mm-hmm. as and so obviously what we see as intelligence and what we can what we can what we feel as consciousness is constrained by those limitations right? so if we if we accept the fact that all vi is computation or like the processing of information in the brain right we, and there's no evidence to, to suggest that otherwise right like and so wouldn't that don't you think that would result in a so if, if you're trying to build something on the on a computer wouldn't that be completely different that would be like a very different set of limitations like say because but, but, simply removing just removing the synapse the synapse uh, let's say let's say that there's a delay between going from one synapse to the next synapse, right? Just mm-hmm. a micro, whatever time that is. But if you remove that time entirely from, say, just on an electronic circuit, wouldn't that be a different type of, like, do you think that'll matter at all or no? Well, I think, I think there's a, a big difference in concept here between intelligence and consciousness. I think they are completely unrelated to, to each other. Um, and consciously, we can go on and speak on forever. I, I studied that quite extensively because it was very interested in it. Uh, uh, but it's a very uh, philosophical, dangerous uh, topic to to deal with, uh, because in the end it depends on a lot of on what type of assumption you start with, um, because most of the theories on consciousness are unfalsifiable, so they are technically not scientific. Um, so yeah, I would I would avoid that discussion, even though I have a lot to say about it. No, oh, I mean you can say um, whatever you want about it, like it's still totally fine. Yeah, yeah, no, but but you know, it would be like it would take a a couple of hours, you know, of the whole discussion. Yeah, we have, and, uh, it'd be, we, have we, a, we have all the time in the world. We can talk about, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Well, maybe, maybe we can go back on it later. Um, uh, just because, you know, it, in the end, it would just be my own uh, uh, opinion about it. Because, again, it's really hard to get uh, uh, hard data about consciousness. Uh, so, in the end, uh, it really ends up being kind of a subjective discussion. Uh, although I do have some ideas that... But, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Tested more in the so... Let's so look, okay. This is interesting. This is interesting about the separation between consciousness and intelligence, right? Yeah. Because wouldn't you say a huge part of what we are as human beings is our intelligence compared to other animals? Um, um I mean 
first we need to define what is intelligence, right? right? Exactly. And and that I was going to say that. And that's the hardest part. I, I actually think that it's not as hard as many people assume. I think that the difficulty is like with conscious that uh, people attribute um, a lot of different uh, and what mildly only mildly related concepts to the same name, uh, um, and that creates confusion. So. Yeah, when you work on the topic, you have to have your own definition of intelligence, you know, the one you base it when you talk about it. In my case, uh, I like some uh, ideas. I think that um, there were, um, in some paper, one was from, um, um, I got a little bit of my tongue, uh, it's a famous AI guy. Uh, but anyway, so it's not anything new, but it's probably not all, all, also not the well, maybe not accepted by everybody, but we say that intelligence is the capacity to uh, to achieve goals. So that you know, all goal-oriented behavior displays some type of intelligence, even if it is like something completely automated, but achieves a goal or a purpose. Uh, I would say that that could be called intelligence. Now there are two differences, however, in intelligence. One is the degree of intelligence, like, and that could be in this framework um, be thought as the capacity to achieve uh, more complex goals. So if you get or getting you know, a higher score, let's say, for example, if you can gather food, you can get, gather like just enough food to survive, or you can gather a lot of food, that could be, you know, a display of more intelligence, of a higher intelligence. And another one is generality. So are you intelligent in one task, like a computer that plays chess? It's uh, super intelligent, but only in that specific task. Then if you give it a car, it cannot drive a car, right? Uh, so, but if you think of intelligence as kind of um, defined over a set of possible tasks, then you can have an agent that is intelligent because it can solve those tasks and more or less intelligent than another, than another system because it can solve those tasks better or faster. Uh, but then you can have a more in general intelligence that can solve those tasks and maybe other tasks as well. So you kind of, I think you have these two directions you can move on. Right, so, uh, basic, right. so if you're going to define, so, so basically a cockroach might be defined mm -hmm. as more intelligent than you know, AlphaGo depending on the context uh, depending on depending on the well, definitely, definitely more general yeah, yeah exactly um, depending on the set of problems that we define as yeah. so but uh there is a um uh wait i would say something uh something important um yeah for example even humans you know we think that we are you know uh, very smart and very you know when you think of agi or some people call it human level intelligence even though i think it's a bit different concept uh people think that humans are general intelligences uh, but we're actually not so we are general intelligences over the distribution of tasks that we find uh, in our natural world uh, mostly because evolution made us good at learning those type of tasks an example we are really good at recognizing pictures, you know, and objects. So if you get a picture of a cat and a dog, even to a little kid that never saw any animal, you can say, this is a cat, this is a dog, even with just one picture. And the kid will be able to tell, you know, given a new picture, to be able to tell you if it is a cat or a dog. And for computers, this is actually hard. Okay, now it's getting easier, but you no, know, it, you know, it's, it, it's actually a computationally hard task. However, take the same task and apply a random permutation to the pixel of the images, but apply the same permutation to all images. So one pixel always go, always ends up in the same position in a new image, okay? But then you, you so basically you scramble the pixel in an image in such a way that all pixels always go to the fixed position that is defined before. And then you apply that permutation to a lot of images. Now you give it to a human and even in a million years, it will not be able to learn just by looking at those random pixels 
it will not be able to learn, you know, to recognize, you know, what category is in there. Even if you tell this is a cat, this is a dog, uh, given a new scramble picture, you will not be able to tell if it is a cat or a dog. A computer instead can do it because it can use a, a fully connected layer, you know, a fully connected network instead of a convolution neural network. In that case, you remove the, in, the, the knowledge that you put inside that in the physical world, neighboring pixels belong to the same object. Uh, and then, in a, you know, a computer can actually learn it with no difficulty. But the human will never be able to do right. it. Right. I mean, that's and a that the evolution. That's a sorry, sorry. That's a mm -hmm. yeah. That's interesting, right? Because because mm -hmm. the, the the very idea of representing an uh, something we see as pixels is a is like an mm -hmm. abstract layer of represent. It's like an abstract layer representation, right? And a computer looks like it, it, it's it's better at learning that more abstract layer abstract representation then yeah i think it's more because uh images form in our retina uh according to laws of physics huh? mm -hmm. and that you know there is kind of a, con a special continuity in the world so yeah you know features of uh, uh, of the same object end up uh, close to each other in the retina um but if you violate that your retina will still expect pixel no a neighboring pixel to come from the same object huh? and if you scramble them your your you know in evolution you know during evolution your human brain or any animal brain has never seen data like that so it never had any uh, any drive to to uh, uh, to develop in you know a retina or nervous system capable of solving the task i mean the task is really useful in the natural world you will never encounter that type of task but it's just an example to say that we are we are general intelligence but we are not universal so, hold on hold on so, so there are tasks we cannot do so uh, just go back to the example you just gave, right? So so I, I'm looking at this, looking at my screen right now, okay? Mm -hmm. So there's a border around my screen, right? And yep. the wallpaper on my desktop is completely different from whatever else is around the mm -hmm. border, right? And I mean, how do you account for that discontinuity? It's like, this is... Well, Objects, objects are, um, you know, when you put an object in front of a background, you see that all the time in the real world, you see objects moving relative to each other as some object like a background is on the back and some object in the, in the foreground. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is, of course, a detachment between uh, an object and its background. And, uh, you know, even in computer, we do it with semantic segmentation, for example, but that's definitely something that the brain has to learn to, to solve. But object, you know, outside the, the discontinuous border between objects or foreground and background, uh, within the pixels are connected. And even if you are have an object in the background and then you move it slightly, and then you move it back, you know, the type of pixel in the background that got uh, uh, um, freed up and become inside and then get hidden again are consistent because again that image is due to physics. Now you can do a lot of experiments using. Uh, you know, violating laws of physics because remember you could do, um, you could make a video in which uh, object permanency does not uh, is violated. You know, that's uh, uh, kids don't have you know object permanency. So if they see a ball that goes behind a, an obstacle, they think that the new ball that comes from the other side is a different object because they don't track the object while you know it is occluded. And you could make experiment in which you get a ball coming behind an obstacle and coming out as banana. And you know, and then you would be surprised because you would not expect it, right? Uh, so you can do this kind of experiment and see uh, how people, you know, how we have a lot of uh, innate knowledge in about the physics of the world. Uh, and the reason is that uh, physics in the world has be been consistent uh, throughout throughout our evolution. So our brain, you know, evolution managed to 
encode this type of information in our brain because it is useful. So you don't have to learn it from scratch every time. Uh, and it is also useful because any type of task you might want to solve in our physical world, you know, in our planet, uh, you probably can. And that's so, why we think that humans can can solve any task. So, but, let's, again, then, so okay, let's just, let's, so let's just take the, take the topic of physics, right? So let's talk about virtual worlds, mm-hmm. right? So we don't seem to have that much trouble coming to terms with all kinds of physics, right? In, 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 in virtual settings. Well, how different physics? Well, okay, I mean, true. It's not like, it's not, it's not, it's not like crazy different, but. Yeah, yeah, because generally all things that you can really imagine and they are consistent with just changing some parameters, right? Not the really violating, uh, the decor of, of right of so, so so in, in a video game the gravity still exists even though you can fly right even if you can just, yeah exactly right right, right. okay that, that, that makes sense but i, I do want to ask you about virtual worlds because i want okay i want to talk about talking about the temporal singularity yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay well, you want to tell us what tell us what that's about yeah, well, it's just a very simple idea. Um, most of the components of temporal singularity uh, were already been uh, said in one way or another. Uh, one way or another before, I uh, just kind of like uh, want. It was just a fun uh, discussion, and uh, so I also want to put it the name. I think temporal singularity was kind of appropriate. Uh, the idea is that um, when you uh, obtain new computing power, uh, you can make uh, an intelligent agent uh, smarter in in practical purposes. Again, depending on the definition of intelligence. By either, you know, making, if it is a neural network, it could make a bigger model that, you know, uses the whole computation, the larger amount of computation. But at some point, you might get to a point in which um, your model is uh, kind of reached the capacity. And then even if you add more power, you know, more compute power, you cannot really improve its, its intelligence, its performance uh, too much. Uh, this is not necessarily true, so we don't know, but, you know, it could be a case. Uh, in that case, uh, it could, you could always still get the benefit um, by having more compute power by simply running the model faster. If it takes uh, less time to do inference on your model, you can uh, uh, do more stuff uh, with it. Uh, now, the interesting part becomes when you start simulating uh, agents that are kind of human intelligence level, or at least they have a, you know, a more complex and more general level of intelligence. Um, because you can imagine, for imagine that you have a, a, a team of agents in simulation and those team, that team is tasked with creating better uh, semiconductors you know, for getting better and faster computers. Now, we know that if we assume that the Moore law uh, still holds, we know that kind of the semiconductor density in a chip uh, doubles uh, every 18 months, even though it is getting a bit slower, but uh, let's take it for granted for a moment. Now, if you could make a simulation and put uh, your design team of artificial intelligence that designed these semiconductors or the technology behind it, uh, uh, in a simulation, and the simulation were to run even just at two th- at twice the speed of the real world, you will get this team to come up uh, with new technology to improve the density of semiconductors in nine months instead of eighteen months. Now, this is a lot with simplifying assumptions um, about you know, experiments in the real world or the interaction with the real world. But again, let's keep it um, uh, with a lot of assumption just for the sake of the narrative. Uh, okay, then you have uh, a new semiconductor that is. Uh, that has twice the density of transistor as the previous generation, but this time you got it in nine months instead of 18 months. Mm-hmm. So you build new computers, and these computers are roughly twice as fast, imagine, than, than the previous generation. Uh, if you have computers twice as fast, you can further speed up the subjective time inside the simulation uh, by another factor of two. So now your agents are four times faster in real time. 
And then the next generation of semiconductor would take 4.5 months instead of nine months. And after that, you kind of get a double exponential because uh, you bought half the time in which you double the compute power. And at each iteration, you also double the, the speed at which um, uh, you make discoveries. Uh, however, the, very, the most interesting part is that if you have uh, you know, truly intelligent agents inside the simulation, and this is left with an asterisk depending on your personal definition or, you know, of true intelligence, but imagine something that, is, uh, that has some degree of um, subjective consciousness or that at least is complex enough to, uh, to work you know, in a, together in a social setting with other, uh, with other agents, you could end up uh, simulating a whole civilization and the civilization could be, at some point, uh, uh, arbitrarily sped up. So even if we do not use the simulation itself to speed up the simulation, uh, you know, compute power increases very fast over time. So we will still get faster and faster simulations. But if you can get some of the, of the design process of discoveries in physics or engineering to perform inside the simulation, you would also gain an extra exponential factor uh, in in the fact that inside the simulation, uh, technology would progress faster than in the real world. But then you could use that, those results to improve your compute hardware and make even faster simulation that that can, can uh, produce uh, new technical, uh, technological and uh, scientific achievement even faster. And it is that um, if these two process interact with each other, uh, depending on limits of physics and, and limited simulation intelligence of the agents, uh, you could very quickly get uh, to a point in which uh, you pass, you, you get from a, like a two times speed up uh, in, in a temporal acceleration inside a simulation to maybe a million times speed up. But a million times speed up would mean that in one year of external time, uh, the agents in a simulation have lived for, will have lived for one million years. And imagine what could the world look like just a hundred years from now. And now imagine if in one year you could pick ahead uh, and see what the, what the world could look like one million years in the future. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of implications about this on the Fermi paradox, uh, on uh, whether science and technology have a limit or they are unbounded, and uh, whether we can use the simulation to assess how stable our civilization can be, so uh, how likely we are to survive so, in the long term. Wait, let's or... let's unpack one of those questions. So, what do you think? Might do you think there might be limits to science and technology? Science and technology, or do you think it's? I think it's a very difficult question to ask. To, so to answer, um, I personally believe that there are probably limits. Um, you know, the amount of energy in the universe is limited. Uh, for what we know now, the speed of light uh, could be put a limit, you know, to to space exploration or movement in uh, in space. Uh, um, the universe itself, okay, the visible universe, uh, seem finite, uh, meaning that uh, um, the the farther regions of the universe are expanding faster than the speed of light because of the of the expansion of space itself. So there are regions that we will never be able to reach in the universe. So even if it was infinite, which probably is, uh, but we will never be able to reach it if the speed of light cannot be uh, overcome. So I think that there are some um, some limits here and there that suggest that the, the things we can do in the universe are probably somehow bounded. Uh, so- but where is that bound is very difficult to predict. So I was just thinking about, you just mentioned a million years from now. Years from now. I mean, I am a huge fan of the human species, so I would like us to carry on, right? Um, in terms of, let's just say, getting off, off the off, off planet, right? Just being a mm-hmm. space-faring uh, species. Um, is, 
is the fund like i mean i'm not sure if i'm what's the is it just an engineering problem at this point is or is it, is it like in terms of physics what's holding us back from well i feel it like, you know all these things like you know becoming interplanetary and the likes uh, are absolutely necessary but they are only a very small fix to the problem and the problem is the following um so first uh, okay we have to say okay you say no you know if you want the human species to survive but what is the human species so if we actually survive in long term, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand years from now or a few million years from now, we will be completely different. And even without, uh, you, know, it, you know, just by evolution, but not evolution, like necessarily meaning changing or adapting or becoming better, you know, there always is some genetic drift. So, you know, population genetic makeup of the population changes over time. Mm-hmm. So in one million years, we will probably be genetically very different than what we are now. Again, in the good or in the worst, okay? But is that same, are they still humans? Because it's not that, you know, uh, like, you know, with Neander, it's not that uh, we, so we slowly become the new species, but at some point, if we have something like Neanderthal and Homo sapiens, and we kind of coexist, and it's not that Neanderthal, uh, that Homo sapiens um, killed the Neanderthals. There were some local fights, but mostly it was that Homo sapiens were um, uh, better adapted to the world. So it kept multiplying while the other population kept shrinking, you know, and then over a very long period of time, it got extinct. So if we get replaced by a new species uh, because of genetic drift uh, and Homo sapiens get extinct, but then there is the next Homo sapiens, you know, uh, still alive, uh, is that still us or not? So if it is not and we want humans to survive, then you have to say, okay, then we want to preserve also our genetic makeup, but that's not probably what we mean, right? So we probably mean that our culture, you know, and the, the story of our culture will keep developing and it's evolving. But again, we have no idea how these things change over a, over a period of 1 million years because the whole sp- human species have existed for 200,000 years and the recorded history is like um, 7,000 years old, you know, or 5,000 years old with the uh, right. Well, I think, I think, so that's, I think, I mean, I think we can think of it as preserving our potential to evolve, right? Like, let's say, yeah. like, if, if, exactly. if, if we just look at, if we just look at the like possible catastrophic risks, Right, nano warfare yeah. or nuclear thermonuclear warfare, or but but is to say that also, uh, even if we become multiplanetary, uh, biological life uh, is intrinsically um, very uh, very prone to extinction. That's why you know, all you know, all species that have ever existed have gone extinct. Uh, well, most of them. Um, of course, uh, we have technology that could make our species uh, immortal. You know, within with some hyphens. But I think that biological life still have a lot of problems because even if you become multiplanetary, we do solve a lot of risks. But then, you know, the sun will engulf, you know, a big chunk of the solar system and even it will get, I think, up to Mars or definitely will make Mars unlivable as well. So then, you know, you're just moving the problem, you're getting a big up, but then at some point you will have to, you know, move to another solar system, you know, or to find better solution. Now, it's, you know, more than 1 billion years from now. So we if we survive that longer, we probably, you know, will have solutions. But, you know, the biological is still weak because um, we rely on evolution to change ourselves. Huh? And even with genetic engineering or technology, uh, biological life is still limited. You know, you, okay, imagine you create a, a new human being that can survive uh, on Mars, like with different gravity, you know, more radiation and light. It will still take, you know, at least one generation after you make these new humans f- for them to grow, you know, and then uh, survive. If you need a change that happens quickly, you don't have those 20, 30 years of time, you know, to save your humanity, and then we are doomed. So I think, uh, and actually strongly believe, uh, that most intelligent civilizations in the universe uh, are actually post-biological, meaning that uh, 
don't you should not think of you know a scenario like Terminator you know killing robots killing human. I think it's more a scenario that we create an intelligent life and then uh, something happened like uh, um, the sun you know engulfed Earth and Mars or biological uh, warfare nuclear warfare gamma ray bars that sterilize the solar system from standing nearby anything can happen. But even when all biological life uh, dies, you know, synthetic life could survive because the generation time to create a new, more adapted version of the living being is as short as a, you know, a few days if they have sufficient technology rather than decades. Um, also, so I think like, that, like plus you could do things like you know, if you if if you were not based on biology, you wouldn't be. Like radiation wouldn't cause you any problems, right? Like yeah, exactly. Or, or it would be easy to you know build a radiation shield, like you know with uh, with lead you know uh, around your body, while for human it would be toxic or too heavy, you know, to carry around, uh, uh, or it could break. Uh, um, so I I think that uh, so okay. So, because... so so this comes back to the point, right? It's like we have to. There's something there's something that is like to be us. Okay, now now, now let's exactly right. So like let's separate out that from. A physical body, right? Like imagine that, imagine, imagine the, that could also be a scenario yeah. where, like, I like the, so so instead of going from planet to planet, what we do is we send self-assembling humanoid humanoid robots, yeah. right? And then just beam our beam our yeah. consciousness to that body, True. and then just let this. I do there. see. But they also like a cover to this, and that's also like you know with the transhumanist and you know and human machine merger. Um, there is one thing that uh, uh, I think uh, I don't think that will ever happen, and this is the reason. The reason is that um, in the short term, uh, it's definitely a good solution. You know, it makes us feel relevant. You know, and keep uh, uh, and uh, enhance us. The thing is, uh, we have evolved. You know, in a in a world uh, poor in resources. So we have this kind of a very awful innate drives to violence, uh, competition for resources, you know, and, and all sorts of uh, bad things we, we don't like. Um, so when you create a machine that are significantly smarter than us, um, you could also engineer them to be like uh, utopian living beings. For example, you could put philosopher on the table and say, okay, what would make a perfect you know, human being? Uh? You can make somebody, for example, intrinsically altruistic, you know, or that creates a stable civilization instead of you know constantly trying to you know exterminate all humanity every couple of years, um, and then you will say, okay, if you have that machine, what is the added value of putting you know a human you know a human brain attached to it? So I think that it's a it's a, a very likely outcome in the short term, but in long term you're not adding anything extra. You know, to the machine. Now, the, the, that depends a lot on your philosophical position. So, for example, if you think that consciousness is something intrinsic of humans that cannot be put in computers, for example, in that case, yes, there is a you know a strict advantage of a kind of merging a human with a machine. You get advantage of the stability and resistance. Okay, so of let me you, you But if you believe that it's kind of deterministic, then uh, human is not had, adding anything to the machine after some point. Not now, but like you say. You know, one thousand years from now. Okay, so let me so ask you a short, short, short term solution. Yeah. So let me ask you. So what do you think we are? What do you what do, What do you think it means to be Jacob? Like, what do you What do you experience? Well, I personally think that the uh, consciousness is an illusion. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a trick that uh, um, it kind of justifies to yourself a posteriori, you know, your your actions. But I don't think conscious as we think think about it actually exists. But it's kind of a, a bit of a narrow uh, view on consciousness. 
Um, I am very, quite close to uh, Daniel Dennett's uh, theories on consciousness, uh, well, especially his uh, refutal of qualia, um, and also about the, uh, what was called, uh, um, uh, the... Could you tell us, could, for those who, for the, for the uninitiated, what is Dennett's uh, refutal of qualia? Yeah, so qualia are one of the big. So people defining consciousness, uh, I've tried to, especially like in the last ten years, uh, I tried to simplify a bit the definition, try to identify the different components of what people think uh, when they, you know, say something is consciousness, and it turns out there are uh, many uh, different uh, aspects to it. Um, one aspect is more like awareness. So if you are conscious about an object because you see it. And that, you know, you can find it in the brain. You record some neurons and you see that those neurons are only activated when you see a face huh? or a specific mug, but not activated when the object is not in your field of view. So when you're aware of that object, you're kind of conscious about that object and then you can really record it in your neurons. And that's uh, even the more hardcore um, metaphysics physic, um, aspect of consciousness guys will still say that, yes, that, you know, still a part of consciousness. Uh, then there is a, uh, what's called the hard corner of consciousness, and that uh, is the subjective perception. So um, what it feels like to be you. And there are some problems with this, um, because depending on how, how deep you, you dwell into the topic, uh, the more you make uh, a theory that is unfalsifiable. For example, some philosopher would tell you that uh, they can think of a philosophical zombie that is uh, a copy of yourself uh, down to the atomic level, but that is not conscious. And now... And, and, that, and then they, they build on that to justify, um, you know, this property of consciousness or subjective experience. Uh, of course, it does not have practical application because if it is an ato atomic level copy of you and any experiment you can do, any question you can ask to the agent will have the same answer whether that agent is conscious or not, uh, then conscious that becomes kind of useless. Now, there is only, in that case, uh, an ethical um, aspect to it. Uh, because in the philosophical zombie, not having a subjective consciousness, uh, you could, let's say, enslave it or, you know, harm it, uh, and it would not feel, you know, subjective feeling. But, you know, he could tell it, he, he could still tell you, yes, you know, please stop, you know, you're harming, you're hurting me. And he would not be able to tell the difference with the conscious person. Okay? So the only difference could be, you know, this ethical treatment. Um, qualia are intimately connected to the heart problem of consciousness. It's uh, an example, a typical example is color. So you see a red ball. And you see, uh, you know, you have a subjective perception of the color red, but that perception, your own perception of red, is different than other people's perception of red. So you can say that it's red, but the way you experience the redness of the object is not something you can communicate. However, there are problems with that, and that's kind of what Daniel Dennett says. So that he has more strong philosophical arguments about it, and that can basically show that the concept is inconsistent. And the reason, uh, in the end, is that, um, you know, if uh, I have my own perception of red, of the color red, when I see that specific color red uh, in, you know, in, in the object, uh, if I cannot communicate it, but not only, if you look in my brain, record from neurons, and see literally no difference in my perception, subjective perception of red, and your subjective perception of red, then uh, it means that my subjective perception of that red does not cannot impact my behavior in any way. Okay? Again, this assume uh, a deterministic uh, um, uh, kind of outlook on uh, on on physics and on intelligence. We can say that uh, uh, you know if your behavior is driven by neurons, 
and uh, your, those neurons get information by the activity of other neurons in your brain, then if you cannot find the difference in the subjective perception of that specific color, then that subjective perception will, cannot impact your behavior in any way. So it's kind of Occam's razor. If uh, that the subjective perception cannot have any impact on, uh, on your behavior, then whether you assume there is or there isn't uh, makes no difference, okay? Because you cannot make any test in the physical world that will have a different outcome, whether you remove that property or not. Kind of like the philosophical zombie. So again, in the physical, uh, in the philosophical zombie, if you, if you take uh, a deterministic uh, uh, and mechanistic uh, um, kind of well, a view, which is kind of common in science, um, you have to assume that if you can do any experiment on on the zombie, well, on the human and the, the unconscious uh, zombie clone, and you will not find ever any difference, then the fact that one is conscious, one is not, is irrelevant. Okay. So, okay, let me ask you. So, what do you what do you think we are doing? Like, oh, are we doing it here? Are we doing it? Are we here doing anything at all? Like, I have this sense that we are like. I wouldn't, I, I'm not going to say we have, we're here for a reason, but like, I'm just saying all of this, you know, all of the you know, laws of physics, everything, all of this seems like a lot of effort. If it's not, if there, if there wasn't like, like I'm not trying to invoke a religious yeah, uh, creationist. I, I think this, I'm just curious. I think this is related to the anthropic principle is that, uh, I mean, if uh, the universe was not uh, like it is now, we would, and we would not exist, huh? we will not be asking the question, right? Mm. So you're kind of looking out of all the possibilities, you know, we just appear by chance, huh? and then we can ask this question. But it's kind of the other way around, right? It's not that uh, everything, is, you know, the universe, the laws of physics, all the co physical constants are not like this in order for us to appear. It's just that if they were different, we would not evolve, and then uh, there would be nobody to ask those questions. Yeah. So, okay, let me ask you a different question. So... Do you have any thoughts on simulation theory? Uh, yes, but I mean, I think it's really amusing uh, idea to think about, but in mo it also depends a lot on, on uh, how the simulation would work. But in almost all instances, um, the theory would be unfalsifiable, which makes it uh, unscientific. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it means that uh, it can be fun to talk about it and actually really a lot of fun to talk about it, but uh, you will never be able to prove whether it is correct or wrong. So, so actually, you know, it, so okay, let's. Uh, so it is going to be relevant, like by Occam's razor, basically. Okay. The reason I, the reason I got interested in that, I mean, mm -hmm. I have a very layman's understanding, but the reason I got interested in that is because I used to play a lot of video games, right? I was a huge fan of video games, mm -hmm. and I, I saw, and and now, and I was honestly, it was making me miserable, but I, I noticed at some point that like, the part of the reason that we find video games so interesting is because they they tick the right boxes in our brain right so they hit the same reward systems for example right mm -hmm. yeah so i was i was looking at some of the games that, that i really enjoy playing so, so so i for example wasn't a huge fan of like first person shooters mm -hmm. i was more a fan of um role-playing games where you grind you uh you you earn you collect coins, you do some stuff, you collect coins, you grind, 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 collect coins, you buy better items, you move on to harder battles, etc. Right? So I was like, man, you know what? I'm spending thousands, like I've spent maybe, you know, 2,000 hours, hours on this. 
uh, why not I why don't I just apply that same logic to my actual life, right? Mm-hmm. So like okay, well instead of so I looked at myself as if I'm a agent in a role playing game, and I was like okay, what skills do I want to have, right? What experiences do I want to have? How do I upgrade those skills and how do I play these levels, right? Like the, the, I think it's that... a weird sort of like a similarity there. Um, there was a um, there was a beautiful YouTube video about that. Huh? Um, uh, I don't remember the channel. It's a very famous channel. Uh, casually explained. Okay. Right, yeah. And they say like uh, your life is a video game, huh? and they show like uh, how because also you know, depending on the static condition, whether you are born in a developed country or non developed country, you get this kind of starter bonus. And yeah. then different levels over time, and it's just a comic, a comic like. A, uh, but it's a whole video. Like, Actually, explain minutes, is amazing. It's so fun. Yeah. There, there's so and, much. and they, uh, they, yeah, they basically talking about this. But I think the similarity is more, um, more on the practical side. Like, um, like also for, again for the entropy principle, if a gamer did not trick you know your reward system and you know did not uh, make you want to play it, you would not play it, and then you would not be having this discussion. Mm-hmm. So the fact you know you play the game and you get addicted to the game is because the game is designed to trigger you know an addiction. Uh, because you know the the creator wanted to play the game, um, so I think it's more like a, a a similarity on a on a practical level rather than a, than a kind of epistemological level. Right. So I mean, okay, let's let, let, let's go on different tangents. So you've been working a lot on robotics, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like building. So I, I can see the hand behind you. In the... Yeah. Uh, actually, it's funny because uh, uh, I say that I was uh, always in robotics since I was like really, really young, you no, know, five, six year older. Of course, then you know, could not do much. Then I started to do a bit more electronic at like 10, 11. Uh, but uh, robotics, especially at the high level, you know, it is really expensive. So that's something that, you know, you can do a little bit at home. Okay, like also that one. Um, but uh, at some point, uh, it does become too expensive if you want to do like something really professional. Uh, and robotics, uh, that's one of the problems of robotics now that is still very expensive uh, and also breaks down all the time. But I had an amazing opportunity, and this is like a, I think it's a, a, it's nice to talk about it um, because when looking for different software that I was using for robotics, I end up um, with a software called Yarp, which is a yet another robot platform, uh, which is a, a software well, framework to to do a lot of things for robotics, mostly at a low level, like uh, to allow communication between different processes uh, and different apps uh, and connect them together, uh, just to basically manage large robotics projects. But this project was managed by a guy, uh, Paul Fitzpatrick, who did his PhD with Rodney Brooks at MIT, so mm-hmm. one of the world's top roboticists, and uh, by George Meta, who um, was work- did his PhD at MIT and then uh, was working uh, uh, back then at, at the Italian Institute of Technology. And now, actually, uh, since uh, two years, I think, uh, he's actually the, the director of the Italian Institute of Technology. And I remember because I was I got involved in that project, and then I found that um, they one or two years earlier, it was uh, I was 16 at that time, huh? and about a few years earlier, they started doing some summer school about the ICAP human robot, which is a really advanced, uh, like 300,000 euro uh, human robot. And they were building the summer school around this big Euro- European Union uh, project so, uh, to do work on this robot. I say, whoa, it would be so cool to go there. But it was like um, 1,000, 1,300 euro to stay there for uh, like 10 days of the summer school, and I was 16, so I could not ask my parents not to pay that much money. Uh, so I was involved in this software project, and I started asking, uh, well, so I found uh, um, the summer school to be really cool to attend, but, you know, 
16 <laughs> and they also don't have funding. They say, yeah, you know what, uh, you know, you see that you're writing a lot of code for this project. It would be actually, you know, I uh, think that you actually be a really good candidate for this summer school. I say, really? Cool. And then uh, the next year, I managed to go. Um, and then I was uh, 18 year old. And uh, and they managed to get there and actually went back like three or four times. Huh? And uh, imagine me at 18 getting access to this super cool human robot. Uh, I could play with it, make demos, and you know, do any sort of, uh, uh, of really cool stuff on an actual uh, very advanced human robot. Um, and I met a lot of really amazing people. And uh, it was uh, uh, you know one of the best uh, summer school I've ever been. So what's the... <laughs> so, so, uh... AI and robotics. Do you like what's the uh, synergy there? I mean, obvi it's obvious you want to have intelligent uh, robots. I think the question would be is more about the reinforcement learning, right? So, so it's like uh, so. First question is about about intelligence and having a body. Mm -hmm. How like how important do you think, do you think that is? Yeah. Um... I think it is extremely important, uh, not necessarily because of embodied intelligence, um, as uh, uh, most people will say, even though it is uh, very important. I think uh, the main important, uh, the, the most import important aspect uh, is more practical. So when we do robotics, uh, for especially for reinforcement learning, uh, reinforcement learning and deep learning are really slow. They take a lot of, uh, they need a lot of data. I think it's because uh, we are kind of skipping the step of evolution that encodes a lot of information in our brains, but it still takes a lot of data. So you cannot put these models, you know, these algorithms directly in the robot and have it learn it in the world because learning this time by reinforcement learning would usually take like uh, more than a hundred years in simulation. So that would be impractical in the world. So we use simulation. However, when you create a simulation, and there are a lot of tricks then to make it work in the real world. However, when you make a simulation, you have to kind of define the, what objects are there, what are the possible interactions between the robot and the object? And you're kind of limited, right? So imagine we are like a, a caveman and uh, you are building tools you know, from stone. So you take two stones together, you, you smash them together to, with special technique that is actually really hard to do, uh, to, to make some flakes. And then uh, hitting the rocks in a special way, you can make like an axe, for example, from out of one of the rocks. Now this, you cannot do it in a simulation. You can do it in a simulation if you, introduce this behavior. So you design that there are these objects like these, um, these rocks uh, and you define them to be uh, able to break. But then you have to make a model that's kind of like a, a finite element analysis like we do in engineering, which is really computation expensive. And then your simulation becomes really slow. So I think that simulation in this case are limited because uh, they don't let the robot do too many things, right? But if a robot is interactive with the real world, and especially if the robot has a complex enough body, then the number of possible tasks it can do is basically unbounded. And that means that uh, you know, the, the, this richness in tasks is, I think, is extremely important to developing intelligence is uh, general instead of um, you know, narrow, and also uh, that is uh, you know, more higher intelligence. And I also think that uh, many tasks do share a lot of common structure. For example, in the basic way, motor control, how to control your hands in a dexterous way. Once you can control your hands in a dexterous way, you can do a lot of things with your hands. You know, you can manipulate objects, build new objects, move objects around. Uh, but all these tasks require the same type of motor primitives, you know, of motor action to be learned. Uh, so the more tasks you learn, actually, the less you have to learn about the new task when you learn the new task. 
Okay, so you can actually you can actually manifest higher intelligence because you become better at all tasks. We we see the same in multitask learning when you do standard deep learning like uh, with images. If the same neural network has multiple output heads, like multiple output layers, one to classify images, one to like the category, one to do semantic segmentation, and one to do you know, foreground background separation, um, because you share the most of the network, all these tasks send uh, uh, more reward, more um, great, more uh, training signal. Like they have more informative gradients that get propagated in the in the shared part of the network, mm -hmm. and this makes the you know the common part of the network like you know imagine the conversion filters uh learn more general uh type of uh connections rather than connections that are only specific to that one task um and we can see sometimes in, in reinforcement learning uh you can see that an agent learns to solve a task and then you look at what happened in its filters and you can see that those filters are very task specific, task -specific. so if you were to use it for a different task uh, it will not they will not be very useful and also if uh, a piece of information is not relevant for the task, then you find that there are no neurons in network that actually learn to encode that piece of information. But if uh, in order to solve a task, you need to learn something specific, like the size of an object in order to manipulate it, then you can actually find uh, um, some neurons in network that encode that variable because it was useful to learn to recognize you know, that specific type of, of feature. So, in, in um, just a general, I'll ask a general question is that, so at this point, do you think, let's say something like AGI is just an engineering problem or is, do we need like a, some fundamental new understandings of you know, um, physics or mathematics? I think we do need, uh, we still need some components, but uh, we, I don't think we are far, uh, that far away. Um, an example is, uh, even though in this case it's a bit um, uh, taken a bit out of context, uh, is uh, um, the bitter lesson by Richard Sutton, which is uh, one of the... Uh, the well the main leaders in reinforcement learning one the one who created the field of reinforcement learning and that is that uh, even when you create new and better algorithms in the end uh, the simpler algorithm the simplest algorithm when given you know when we when we give them more compute power the simplest algorithms always perform better so you know the, the idea is that in the past decades we did improve our algorithms and we achieved better performance then we got better you know more compute power and we found that the easiest algorithms were actually still the most performing because we were actually scaling more. So the idea is that if you have a simple system, you know, a simple algorithm that, however, keeps improving in performance, the more compute power you give it, you will always do better than a system that works better now, but does not scale. Right. And this is the same, for example, you know, gradient-based learning. Why it is effective is not because um, of something magical. Is that when you frame uh, learning as an optimization problem, which is a big open question in the field. So we don't know for sure if the human brain learns by maximizing objective. I think it does. I mean, in that line was like, I think kind of like the Yannickon line, line uh, but it's not um, proven and not agreed on in the field. So it's kind of like in you know, a personal opinion. But if you think of that, then, uh, you know, all optimization problem, if you have access to gradients, you can always do better than if you don't have access to gradients. So in that case, uh, I think that the gradient-based learning will have uh, you know an important role in uh, in AGI as well, more for this kind of practical reason. Um, however, I do think that the biggest cha change uh, that is required and is not done much now is that people say that deep learning is not like human learning, and of course you know it's not. It's talking more about the functional level, right? But 
the main difference about people saying that deep learning is not a realistic model of learning is that uh, it takes a lot of data because it is based on statistical learning. Mm -hmm. I actually don't agree with this with this statement because we are kind of comparing a neural network that starts from blank state with random weights and has to learn to solve you know a visual classification task from scratch, and we compare it to a human that was brain and nervous system has got like five hundred millions of time in evolution. Uh, in which evolution has encoded a lot of information, both in terms of actual content, like a kind of rough initial connectivity, and also in terms of algorithm. So we are designed to be uh, to be a, a good meta learner. So, so we are designed by there, evolution to be good at learning fast. Is there is there I mean art or any uh, any science in could in in terms of, in terms of how to get that meta learning like the millions yeah. of evolution out of, out of us and put it into a machine yeah so uh, it is in, any, in a couple of different ways uh, um the meta learning algorithms for now are still not uh, no they are really impressive but they're still kind of limited because they are based uh, they are gradient based and uh, and become a second order optimization problem that uh, becomes very tricky to compute uh, in practice and also very computation intensive however uh, we are finding better ways to do it for example, using derivative free optimization. That's what I'm working on. Um, there is one thing, however, I would like to talk about, and that's a, a, the Baldwin effect, which I think kind of exemplifies uh, this relation between meta-learning and learning across evolution or within your lifetime. So Baldwin effect uh, um, is uh, a type of learning. Well, it's a kind of a relation between... Uh, um, basically, it talks about uh, um, the evolution of agents that can learn. Okay. Uh, so they can adapt to the environment. And it was following. So if you have a static environment, so nothing changes, um, each agent is capable of learning after you know, reaching that point in evolution. Then uh, within the lifetime of, of, the, of each agent, each agent will learn a certain set of skills. But because the environment is stationary, they will, most of them will still end up learning the same set of skills, like you know, how to hunt, for example. But if the environment does not change, uh, it is actually really expensive to have, to keep a nervous system. So y there is an evolutionary pressure to kind of make these behaviors innate. There is that if you are born with kind of a primitive innate behavior that is what you would have learned otherwise in that environment, uh, you don't have to learn it, which means that one, you save time. So, you know, if it is about defending yourself from wild animals, uh, you can do it even if you are young instead of, you know, possibly risking dying, you know, before you learn it. And two, you can uh, uh, afford the fewer uh, you know, um, resources in the nervous system because learning is not really useful because you just have to memorize this innate behavior of evolution and you will do well in your environment. The point is that uh, if the environment is not static, so it's not stationary, but it changes over time slowly, then it is useful to have a nervous system because if you are born in a new environment, uh, then you have to be able to adapt your behavior to the new environment. But it is that uh, after... If, uh, if consistently each agent in each generation ends up learning the same type, same type of skill or you know, change their system in a certain way to adapt to the environment, that change, if it is consistent, it is better to encode it as innate behavior or as you know, uh, genetically. Because it's something that you always end up learning and you know, it's more efficient to have it already provided by you know, when you're born instead of having to learn from scratch. So um, DNA is sort of like uh, so. How would you conceptualize DNA in that sense? Like it's just like a. Uh, uh, I mean that's like a more implementation uh, uh, thing. 
the relation between uh, DNA and developmental brain is extremely complicated. Um, so, uh, and it's not also not my field. Uh, so I would not be able to you know how it is done. In no, no, no. What I, what I mean is like just... But, but, we, say that, like, but we do say it experimentally, right? Because uh, this kind of explains very nicely all the difference between innate behaviors and uh, uh, learning and nervous systems. And there are computer simulations about it as well. No, so I, I was just curious about sort of um, why DNA would have evolved, right? Or like survived. But it, like it's a it's a great way of transferring previously learned knowledge to the... Yeah. So in that case, it's kind of like a, a way to make uh, evolution more uh, Lamarckian instead of like uh, Darwinian. Now, of course, we know that Lamarckian evolution is, you know, is not... Uh, what evolution looks like, but uh, according to the Bolden effect, uh, that is one way in which uh, evolution can actually behave kind of a bit more Lamarckian. Uh, and again, it, it, it is observed. Uh, it is a known phenomenon. There are still you know, a lot of debate uh, uh, about it, even though it's a very old theory. Uh, but it's been it become a very popular in uh, you know machine learning uh, because it does fit kind of nicely. You know, these two levels of learning or multiple level of learning, and not not all learning in, now uh, intended as optimization uh, happens you know, within your lifetime by changing your nervous system. A type of learning optimization is also performed by evolution, again, without an objective, just that um, you know, it, if, you, if some of these aspects can increase the fitness, or, you know, the, so the chance of the survival of the agent or the chance of reproduction, then uh, uh, you know, there is an advantage uh, to have those kind of uh, characteristics. Uh, encoding in somehow in your DNA, such that uh, you will uh, have those characteristics in the next generation, or you know, in the future. So, uh, okay. so when you're working on, so in your in your work in robotics, right, is, yeah. what are you, what are you, what what are you trying to achieve in, in terms of like, what do you want to get done? Well, there are two things I want to do with robotics. One is that, again, uh, we need to work in simulation for practical reasons. I don't think we can really get away from that, for especially at least in some initial training. Uh, and then there is a, a, a class of methods called sim to real which is uh, how you transfer the behavior learned simulation to the real robot. Now, this does not always work, because the simulation, even if it is very accurate, is still different than reality. You don't model the, the temperature of the air or the density of the air or you know a lot of other factors uh, or minor imperfections in the body of the robot. And all these can lead to errors that compound at each time step. So basically a simulation and a real robot uh, do diverge really quickly. That's called the reality gap. So there are methods to try to make, uh, you know, to fix this problem and to try to train a simulation but then use what, you know, the, the train model, the train neural network into the physical robot. And I think that one way to do it uh, would be using meta-learning. If you can encode this kind of priors in order to make uh, the, the agent be good at learning faster. So that's one of the main applications of meta-learning. It's kind of a, a few-shot learning. And you can imagine Simtorial as a few-shot learning task in which uh, the agent is doing a simulation such that uh, when it is put in the real world, uh, it is given, like, say, five minutes of trials but uh, after doing those five minutes of trying the real world, then it learns to perform the task in the real world. Okay, and you can model this. In the, but this also is still connected to, to what we were discussing about uh, the amount of, of prior information embedded by evolution before you start learning, or before you are born, and what you learn after you are born. So the idea would be to, to do the evolutionary step, uh, even though it does not have much in common with evolution, it's more like on a functional level, but you can imagine encoding this um, evolutionary optimization process 
in simulation that you can do on a supercomputer and then uh, do the actual within lifetime learning you know on the physical robot so now there is a con- sorry, one, yeah, one, one thing because this is actually connected to another um, uh, another concept that is become, gaining traction in these years which is called the foundation models so it's the same idea just with a different name and applied to standard um, supervised learning instead of um, deep, uh, reinforcement learning and this is for example gpt3 so what are, uh, are people doing now they are building these massive models train on a lot of data and train on a supercomputer. And even a supercomputer can take months to train, okay? But after you train this model, this model has a lot of parameters. And we know that models that are heavily overparameterized can also generalize better. And this model can actually be very powerful on tasks that are very different than the one they were trained on. So you can do fine tuning on GPT-3 for your specific task. And that is something similar to you know, the robot when you apply, when you first train in simulation using a supercomputer, but then you are given the final model and then you fine tune it on, a, you know, on your own task. So that would be like the one, the learning the real world. But it's very powerful because it means that um, we do the step, uh, kind of this step of made by evolution to encode a lot of information, like in GPT-3 would be like the structure of language or a lot of you know, statistics about language. And you do it once using a lot of compute power. But then you have this basic starting model that is uh, in this kind of a very loose analogy that is like uh, an individual after you know he's born, and then you can actually train it, you know, in uh, with very little data, and it's much faster. So that's fun. So that's kind of like a, like so when you're when you, when when a human's born, and then like, well, assuming that they have a reasonable life life and family, whatever, right? Or like whatever in 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 any any situation, they're born and they're like on the first eighteen ish years, they're trained on the supercomputer called culture. No, I would say that supercomputer would be the the evolution before, so before you're even born. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, okay. And then uh, what you learn, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, it's important, but less important. Okay, when you're really young, it's really important, but I, my guess would be that, um, you know, uh, the amount of information you can encode in, DNA, in the DNA is really small. I think like, uh, what was it, like one gigabit of information or something like that, or on that order of magnitude, if I remember correctly. Uh, while the brain, you know, has a hun- hundreds of trillions of connections. So you cannot really, you know, encode each connection or each algorithm. So you have to do a very, a very high amount of compression of the information. So one way to compress the information is to, um, this is if I'm unsupervised learning or with self-organizing system. If you encode only the basic rules for the brain and the basic algorithm and the basic overall connectivity, uh, because of the rules of self-organization that are, um, uh, that develop according to the rules specified in the DNA, you always end up getting the same pattern. For example, in the primary visual cortex, huh, we have uh, uh, things called uh, uh, ocular dominance uh, columns and orientation columns. So basically, if you look at, at the, your uh, primary visual cortex at the back of your of your head, huh, and, and you look at the activity of neurons when uh, you are looking with uh, your left eye and right eye and see which one is the dominant one for that neuron, you see that there is a very specific pattern and uh, made with stripes. And if you look at each neuron and see what is the preferred uh, orientation of a line that they respond to, because that's the main thing, uh, well, one of the main uh, response in the primary visual cortex, uh, you see that they organize uh, in a very smooth way with a very special pattern uh, that is very no- well known in the field. So it is that uh, your, your DNA is not specifying that pattern. Your brain, is, your, your DNA is specifying some rules you know, of uh, self-organization. And during your infancy, you experience the world in kind of an unsupervised way. 
And that simply observing the world leads to creating these patterns in your brain, right? Because that's the only way, the only thing that will arise when given certain input statistics and uh, behaving and self-organizing according to this set of rules. So if you take, so, so if you take a infant and you put them, put them in a inside a sphere with no edges. Yes. Yeah, they did it with, when they could, like I think in early 1900, when there were no ethic, you know, uh, <laughs> review boards, they did an experiment with kitten and they put them uh, with some, I think like some head fixture or something. So they could not turn the head. No, uh, they could not, not rotate the head. They could only keep it straight. And they put them in an environment with only vertical stripes. So no other orientations. Then they looked at the, their, their brain and there's a critical time in kitten of like two weeks. And they looked at the, the neurons in the primary cortex and see what lines they were selective to. And they did not find the pattern I was telling you before. They would only find neurons selected to vertical lines or horizontal because of the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, the, the experience, they're just looking at the world, huh, did produce a different pattern of self-organization because the statistics of what is in those images changed. Because instead of being a overall random oriented lines of all orientation, you only had vertical lines. Um, but this idea that uh, if uh, you know that by self-organization, if the n- nature has certain statistical pattern and you apply certain self-organization rule to the brain, uh, you, if you know by evolution that uh, you will always end up getting that pattern or, or that pattern of connections, uh, you don't need to specify those connections one by one. You only need to specify the self-organizing rule and then uh, you will get that pattern always or like 99.999% of the time. Now, they probably are pathological, you know, pathologies that would uh, uh, affect this kind of uh, um, you know, self-organization and then you would have some, uh, you know, um, some type of damage. So, but, so uh, it would happen in a very small part of the in, the, in that sense, like, so do you think it's actually, so this idea of trying to represent the world in a way that, like, in a, in a way that can be implemented in a machine or something, do you think the idea of representing the world is, it, 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 it sounds like it's kind of di- pointless or slash difficult, right? Like trying to get a. But what, what do you mean by representing? The so world? and again, actually, like so, let's say you want to uh, get a get an agent to behave in the free world, like in the in, in the natural world, right? Um, how do you like? Do you think trying to give that robot or like an agent an idea of what the world is like? And what to do in that in that world internally um, is is the is the is the, is, the, is, is useful. Well, I, I would say uh, not explicitly. I think that uh, there is uh, an advantage in uh, in including like uh, in the uh, you know uh, prior information explicitly. We did it for CNNs, you know, the Commission Neural Networks. One of the reasons we suspect they work so well is because well, the the visual system is doing it as well. But in, in general, we know that the information images has this local structure. So by imposing this local connectivity by convolution, instead of using fully connected networks, uh, does have an advantage because it reflects you know, kind of the physics of the world. So in that case, uh, it is very effective. To actually include uh, information about the world, like gravity, I think it would not be that useful. I think uh, as long as make a realistic world enough for a simulation, then uh, the agents uh, or, not, or this evolutionary process would learn to encode uh, what is actually useful. And what's actually useful may not be what you think it is useful. We see it for when they did instant machine learning and do feature engineering, and then you do end-to-end learning with deep learning that learns the features by itself. Huh? You see that you always do better than when you hand engineer the features. Because uh, by doing statistical learning, the algorithm can find uh, 
better, you know, can actually find what is actually important, you know, in the data uh, more than you can. So you can think that this information about the world is important, but when the actually robot is solving a task, you, you might actually find that that is not really that useful. So what kind but of other things you look at? So let's talk about Boston Robotics, those those <laughs> crazy robots, right? Yeah. Um, they are doing standard control, not even deep learning, actually. Okay, okay. So yeah, so, so they're doing like what, like I'm not. I think I saw that like Spot is there has some industrial use, yeah. has some industrial yeah. use, but like do they make uh, like commercially usable? Uh, I think so. So I don't know how commercially, but definitely you can buy it at least. Like, but the Spot Mini, which is a smaller of the dog, is still eighty thousand euro. So you know, it's not very. Uh, right. usable in practice. And the main uh, uh, the main robot, I think it's called Atlas. It's, uh, I don't even know if the if the cost is known, but it's it probably like in the hundred thousands. Um, but that's common with most robotics. Uh, that's why there are a lot of trends for using, you know, uh, 3D printing or plastics instead of, uh, of CNC machined uh, metal. It's a big advantage, even though the robot is, uh, you know, uh, more fragile, right. but it becomes much cheaper to produce. So and also using cheaper motors but it's still really hard. So let's talk about the future, like robotics in the real world in the future, right? Um, uh, like, so, you know, we have the sci-fi future. Like, I, I mean, what do you think? Like, what kind of future do you think includes robotics? And how far? I, I think, yeah, I think robots will and have to be widespread because, you know, we have a lot of AI system, even if people don't realize. For example, you know, in your phone, you have a, uh, Siri, or you have voice recognition, image recognition, all the things that are intelligent behavior because they solve the task, but they, they perform a task that would otherwise require a human to do. So that's also, you know, actually intelligence, even though most people don't realize it. However, we are still limited because, yeah, you know, if you can create an interview, like, you know, a microphone, it's easy. Okay, so you don't need much hardware. You put your phone, you put the microphone, then you send the, you have either on a neural chip on, the, on your phone or you send the the recording to a server and that gets processed. But when you actually want to do intelligence for an actual behavior, that's where the reinforcement learning comes by, it comes by um, you need to have a body. So if you want to do a task, it could be self-driving, uh, could be you know, a factory, could be uh, a you know, home assistant robot or something. Uh, you know, if you want your system to interact with the physical world, it has to have you know, some type of body. Or you know a robot in the general sense of having sensors and actuators to kind of interact with the world. Um, the problem is that um, there are a lot of reasons why robots are still not that widespread in the real world. I think two reasons are particularly important. One is that it's cost, so they're really expensive to produce them, and even the cheapest are still not thousands of euros. Uh, and also connected to that is that robots, especially the motors, break very often. So if you have a, a robot running for twenty-four hours, you most likely break at least one motor just to burn out. Um, and you know, replacement can be expensive or may require an expert. So that also limit uh, you know the durability. And the second biggest problem, however, is that uh, uh, robots work well in constrained environments, like you know, in factories, because you can you can you can forecast every possible situation that can happen. But if you put a robot in your home, that's a completely unconstrained environment, and the robot has to be able to adapt to your house, for example, and also has to be able to to uh, change its behavior in uh, to react to unexpected uh, circumstances. Okay, so for example, um, uh, yeah, you know, okay, imagine that you train this agent, this robot uh, in, a normal, in an apartment and then you get to a house where there are stairs, okay, and the robot has never seen stairs. 
Um, so the, or, or even just like different different images, different levels of luminance, you know, illumination or different type of objects to interact with, uh, and uh, you basically get uh, in a in a world with uh, almost a unbounded combination of of uh, situations, and the agent has to learn, to be able to perform well in all the situations. Right. So in order to do it, uh, I think that the agent has to have some capacity to adapt and to learn, um, you know, to the new environment but also to be more robust. So you cannot do this with traditional robotics method because in a traditional computer vision or, or even with deep learning with full computer vision, you cannot uh, make a model that text objects uh, and then encode behavior based on that because maybe you find a new object that you never forecasted before. So the robot still has to have, you know, it, 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 to be able to change its whole behavior and to keep learning in the new environment. So what about, I'm sure you've, uh, about this, so what about this Tesla bot? Is, is this going to happen or no? I think it's uh, only hype. Elon Musk is, uh, I, I don't like his uh, ideas and his philosophy, but of course, you know, he's a, I do have a good esteem of him because he's you know, a very, very hard achiever. But he's also known to underestimate the complexity of tasks. And uh, human robotics uh, is an incredibly difficult task. And also, again, can be uh, very expensive for a lot of reasons. So I think that the the idea to build uh, an actual, you know, utopian human robot uh, out of nowhere, it's completely unrealistic. Now he's putting a lot of money, so he will definitely achieve something, but not even like one percent as close as what he thinks. You know, he wants to do, uh, because again, it's a really hard topic. But hopefully, we get some advantage, uh, some advances, you know, in the field. Yeah, I think. I think the, putting money in the field is always a good way to make it advance. I think it's useful, right? Like, I think it's useful for someone to be out there to try to do these insane, crazy things. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And again, I think that the chances of success are small, but in the process, it could actually probably end up getting something useful. Okay. So even uh, even if he does not achieve uh, his objective, uh, he might still, uh, you know, yeah, do something cool or yeah. something that in the end would be useful. Uh, could be like maybe you know designing a better, cheaper, and more reliable motors. You know, could right. be designing better algorithms. Can be a lot of things. Yeah. So actually, um, I, I heard him talk about. I, was, I, I heard him talk on. Uh, I think it was Lex Friedman. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. he was talking about a lot of the work. For example, they do at Tesla is like I don't know, like building new C compilers that are faster and more efficient. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like okay, I mean that's useful, right? I mean, they yeah, can, exactly. They can bring a lot of so, benefit. Like even I mean, there are so many NASA technology spin-offs that have benefited so many people, right? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, yeah, absolutely. I just think, you know, the, the, the whole idea, you know, of the Tesla board will be like, uh, be able to do basically everything a human can do, like a magical human robot. I, uh, I didn't know, I didn't know he was claiming those. I just saw the, I just saw the video. I didn't know he was claiming. Yeah, it, it just, uh, yeah, but the video also makes it look like that the robot is already here. Yeah. But that's like, uh, I think in the, in the presentation, it was actually a person in the suit, uh, just to give an idea of what it could look like. Uh, but yeah, everybody's good not to put on a suit or a fake robot and you know act it. It's like the old mechanical Turk. Uh, I think that the impact we have not seen not even like a, a partial demo or of anything about the hardware except you know the artist rendering of the mockup. So okay, so what about like. Neuralink? What, what do we what do we think about? Neuralink, uh, I like it. Uh, I think that uh, it will not be successful because it is too early. Um, but it will produce a lot of technology that uh, to be useful in the future. Um, uh, but I think that it's still, you know, about the, he, so as an interface, it's really good. So when you interact with the computer, even if you're really fast at tapping on a keyboard and moving the mouse, you're wasting a lot of time, right? If you could just think uh, the text you want to type, uh, that would be, you know, as fast as it gets. 
But merging computers and machine, as we've seen before, I think it's only like a, a, a short term uh, thing that will not have uh, an impact in the very long term of uh, our civilization. It will only be useful for yeah for a short while. Okay. Well, that's no. I'm just, I think I think that's his answer. To try and avoid the AI uh, catastrophe, right? He would just like yeah, hey, yeah. Let's yeah. just merge with the. Let's just merge with the computer, and like, I, I would not be. Yeah, but at some point, but at some point, you know, if you keep increasing the intelligence of your machine counterpart that you merge with, uh, at some point, uh, what is that the human brain is adding to the mixer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, wh wh why is it better than the machine alone? Again, provided a lot of asterisk about, you know, how the machine works, it drives and everything. But at some point, uh, there is a point in which uh, we are a liability for the machine. For me... You know, we are not adding anything yeah, to the machine. Like for me, I'm not even thinking about AI. I'm thinking about sort of medical use, right? Like it would be, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It would yeah. be amazing, uh, like, for example, because, like, like, so we take... I mean, like psychiatric medication is, you know, pretty wide, widespread yeah, yeah, around yeah. the world, right? But it's so, yeah, no, but... it's so untargeted and it's so like uncalibrated, right? So let's say you're on an anxiety medication, you take the same amount of medication every day, regardless of what you how, yeah, how, how yeah. they do it for example, you know, with the deep brain stimulation, for example. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely a very, a very interesting and very useful uh, direction into which it will, uh, it will go. Uh, another one is what we did uh, also in my college uh, before. We have some papers about it. We do like for, for neuroprosthetics when you have uh, like a prosthetic hand and you want to interact it, uh, you know, to interface with the nervous system, even though it's peripheral nervous system, to not only capture the motor commands to control the motors you know, in a realistic way, but also to give feedback about, for example, restoring the sense of touch. Okay? And this we do it. And uh, for this in interface, uh, I think that it's good to mimic the neural code, like using spiking neurons. Otherwise, I think spiking neurons are not uh, um, will not be very useful. But in this case, I know when you interface yourself with the with the nervous system, you, you know it, it's definitely useful. I mean, it would be so amazing to like you know to go open your app and just turn down anxiety before you go to sleep. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that in some sense that could be achievable. You know, it does take a lot, it still take a lot of time, but that could be could be achievable. Because like, like one of the like one of the reasons. Medications for their brain, like like they say, psychotropic psychotropic drugs. Yeah, it's so useful is because we we like we physically the only way to get to those parts of the brain that are inside the deep parts of the brain is through the bloodstream, right? Yeah, and through the uh, through the blood brain barrier. Yeah. But it's so untargeted, like it just hits everywhere at the same time. So it would be great to have some targeted therapies. Yeah. Can I so one second? Can I uh, need to go? Like, can I go for five minutes? Yeah, come back in a second. Yeah, I'll pause, I'll pause. Yeah, Just a break. Yeah, no problem. We, we, then we continue. Yeah, just sorry. Okay, so yeah. we're back. We're back. All right. So, um, I man, this has been like you. This has been like a, such a tour of just all kinds of weird things that I that I like to think about. But uh, um, I, I I do want to be respectful of your time. So you you given me an hour. Oh yeah. That's, so, but okay, I'm gonna let you go soon. But before that, I have a couple of questions, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, first question is: if so, uh, if someone if, for people who want to get involved with robotics, and they, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. they could be young people or like someone old like me. Like, so what? What say? Just say from high school. What, what do you think a good good trajectory is in terms of? Uh, well, uh, robotics is a massive field, so there are a lot of ways you know one can get involved there's more traditional robotics which is mostly control theory <clears throat> there is the hardware part like mechatronics or there's the you know the AI, the AI part but the AI part can take also a lot of forms I'm in the camp 
uh, deep reinforcement learning. So in that case, I'm very biased. Uh, but we can apply AI in, in other ways. You know, you can just use a standard you know, CNNs to make a vision model and then you know, interface them with other components that you can design or I don't know. Um, in my case, I think that uh, uh, deep reinforcement learning is extremely important for robotics. Um, it's the natural interface between uh, everything good we have of the, uh, with deep learning and you know learning behavior and uh, <clears throat> then putting in pra putting into practice with robotics. And you see, <clears throat> we did see massive improvements in the capacity in the capabilities of robots uh, when using deep reinforcement learning versus traditional methods. So I think it is very promising. The problem is that uh, it takes a lot of time to train, so we need to resort to simulation. So if if a, a young person were interested in this part of, like in this side of the topic for the future, I think that uh, they could already start playing with um, with uh, a lot of software that is available uh, to train these agents in simulation. So starting with deep reinforcement learning in simple tasks, and then uh, with libraries like uh, Mujoko or Isaac Jim, they can train uh, robots even on complex tasks in simulation. And uh, usually nowadays they can do some of these tasks even on a single GPU, on a single computer. Um, so that would be definitely be a way to to learn about the you know the most advanced technology we have now for for so just tell me a couple of those examples you just said so I put them in the description later. Uh, for example, well, uh, one is Isaac Jim. It's not easy to use. It's kind of like a very uh, preview, pre pre-release. So it's a kind of immature, mm -hmm. but it's also very fast. Otherwise, Mujoko is a very famous library. Now that mind bought it. Um, what about OpenAI's Jim? Do they have some Jim's? Uh, yeah, but Jim is uh, really only about a, a software interface. So it's only to set a standard to right. how to define environments. The actual environments in Jim are significantly deprecated. So people use them you know, as a simple baselines on you know, on algorithms for reinforcement learning, but they are not uh, interesting or useful per se. Right. Okay. Uh, Okay, cool. Okay. Um, and so the other thing would be to, to play with uh, Arduino and the likes uh, and simple robots, because in the end, uh, you can do robotics in simulation. It was all nice and fun. But when you start working in the real world, you get a lot of problems. In, in simulation, you have a reinforcement learning agent, so you can take a step in the environment by selecting an action and get the new state and so on and so forth. In the real world, if you select an action, you have some delays because the commander has, to, well, you have you get uh, like a picture from the camera, then you have to complete an action. That requires usually a neural network. And your network will take uh, maybe 50 milliseconds to get an answer. Or, and then after you get this answer, you have to send the motor. But by the time you send it to the motor control board, then the motor control board activates the motor. Then there is a physical time, you know, a time due to physics huh, that the motor receives the command, but it's not moving immediately to the position, right? It is moving. You know, it start accelerating. Then you know that that movement also takes time. So in the end, between the time you put you select, you observe the state they want to select an action, and the time in which the action is actually physically executed in the physical world, there is a time delay. And this time delay could also be random. So uh, meaning that it could meaning it could be a random variable. So it could be like uh, fifty milliseconds on average, but maybe there is standard deviation of like five ten milliseconds, and that can uh, can affect your uh, the 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 behavior that's been learned in simulation quite considerably. So it means that if you want to make a simulation more realistic, you have to model these effects as well. Right. And then you interact with the robot, and then you play with it for half an hour, and one motor breaks. Right. And then you have to stop the experiment and change it. So playing with electronics, even just with an Arduino, I think is a good way to get acquainted with these uh, with these practical issues. So nice. that 
not you're you're aware of them. Okay, and so two more. There's two more questions. So like, what what, what do you think in terms of the Let's not talk about millions of years, but the next hundred years. Like, what kind of world do you think it's like? What what kind of world would you like to look forward to? Would you would you like to see emerge? Yeah, I, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I do hope that uh, you know, one hundred years from now, you know, it's you know, it, it seems a lot of time, um, and you know, in advanced science technology can also do a lot of stuff, but even when science and technology develops so faster. Uh, again, we still have this problem with biology that, uh, you know, you have current people and current people are very difficult to, ch- to change their mind, right? So you, after a certain age, uh, and I don't speak about, you know, when you're actually old, you speak even just, you know, at uh, 25, 30 year old, you already have, you know, your kind of uh, ideas and it's very hard to change them. And even with changes the technology, you know, people will not use the new technology and the likes. But I think more on the cultural level. So there are things like, uh, you know, democracy um, that, take a lot of time uh, to get uh, uh, assimilated you know, or for you know development of a country. Um, so I think that there, there will be a lot of changes in the world, uh, but may, many changes require a significant change in mentality and in culture and in education that take uh, many generations to, to happen. Because first you have to get the new ideas off to the, you know, to the public. Then these ideas have to convince you know people like the ruling people to change you know, maybe the the teaching curriculum, and then you you get start educating new generations you know with the new ideas, and then a bit of, a bit of time you know the the overall mentality and culture of the world changes, but I think that is the most limiting factor to our progress as a civilization right now, uh, and the fact that uh, it it's a bit disappointing that uh, it it is you know it did not uh, happen that fast. So because what's the what's the what's the worst worst case outcome? Say hundred years, like what's the what's an outcome you think they'd be? Horrible? Oh well, I I I would say that the chance of of us exterminating ourselves is actually pretty high, not high as 90 percent, but maybe as high as uh, you know. Okay, now this is just a complete guess because of course we have no way to say. I would say that uh, maybe 20 percent chance that we we self go extinct within the next hundred years. I think it'd be maybe a bit high estimate, but. Uh, uh, but I would not say that it would be uh, realistic. So in the worst case scenario, we probably go extinct uh, because of ourselves, not because of of external of external things like you know an asteroid or something. Um, however, every time you, know, you can see things going bad, uh, you can also see that there is a, a tendency of humanity to kind of reach an equilibrium. So we always tend to reach a kind of a safer uh, compromise in the end. So maybe we we managed to survive. <laughs> Good. I mean, I hope so. Like I did generally hope so. All right. Well, I, I just think that it would be really sad yeah. to. So, I mean, um, uh, you know, passionate about the Fermi paradox uh, and the civilization in the universe, and I'm pretty sure that you know, out of statistical reason, and also because we are not that special, um, I'm pretty sure that the universe is definitely teeming with life, definitely uh, unicellular life at least, uh, but most likely also intelligent civilization. The problem is that until we find one intelligent civilization, and by the way, another civilization could also be worse than us. Okay, so uh, until we find another intelligent civilization, we have to assume that we are the only one. Not because we are, because I'm pretty sure we are not. But if 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 we were, and we went to go uh, extinct, you know, because we kill ourselves, it would be really sad. Because uh, we, even if I think that conscious kind of an illusion, it's uh, we still like kind of interest of this self-organizing matter that at some point reaches this kind of level of intelligence and and complexity. And if we actually were the only intelligent civilization in the universe, 
it would be extremely sad if uh, we killed ourselves or Absolutely. if we got extinct. I, I, know, I, I, I agree with you. So I think that it would be useful to have kind of this backup, like, uh, you know, intelligent life, you know, synthetic life huh? um, as a backup. Because if something goes wrong and we actually go extinct, uh, I would feel better knowing that at least some part of us survives. I agree. Well, that's a hopeful <laughs> message. And uh, on, on that note, I think that's a good place to wrap it up because that was great. Um, I mean, this has been incredibly incredible. Like, we never do this again because, like, you, your your breadth of uh, knowledge is is astounding. So we'll have we'll have to come back and like maybe dig down on just on one of the things you, you talked about. Today. So it was really 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 interesting. And uh, I, I thank you. I just, it was it was a lot of fun to speak with you. <laughs> thank you. Like, like I it's it's been great. Like gave me a lot to think about, and hopefully the people who were listening to it also have something to think about. And uh, I didn't even get, like I didn't even get to. I wanted to talk to you more about like fundamental like mathematics stuff, but we'll get to this another time. Um, but again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you being here, and uh, I'll see you around. I'm gonna see you on campus. I'll see you in class, I guess. And uh, yeah, great. Catch you later, boys. Thank you for joining me in this conversation. I hope you got something out of it. And until next time.